Hello, welcome to Central Valley Physicians Podcast. My name is Nicole Butler from Fresno Madera Medical Society. And today we have Reyes Voras, MD, emergency medicine, and he just so happens to be the medical director of the Poison Control Center here in town. Um, and today we're talking about snakes and spiders um, and more so about their bites, not about the being pets or anything, because I just think that's crazy. Um, but anyways, welcome, doctor. Thank you so much. Okay, so we live in the valley. We know we have uh, snakes. We know we have, it's, a, you know, a lot of rattlesnakes in the area. We also have a lot of spiders, I'm assuming, because of the dry environment, the hot environment that we, that we live in. But what are some of the other or more common critters that we have here in the Central Valley? Well, that, that's a great question. As you know, um, we're in an, an outdoor paradise here in Fresno in the Central Valley, and so many of our physicians as well as our patients love to enjoy the great outdoors, and that's wonderful. Uh, and so we do here at the Poison Control Center uh, from all over the state uh, of, of patients that have gotten um, bitten by or affected by different creatures. Uh, the most worrisome, the more serious um, envenomations that we uh, get into uh, include rattlesnake bites as well as uh, spider bites from the, the black widow spiders. And then, you know, there's 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 others that could be serious potentially, but they but they more commonly just cause sort of uh, more nuisance or uh, very minor um, issues. Uh, and that includes uh, insect bites with ants uh, and bees and wasps. I mean, obviously, people can be allergic and that can be a very serious uh, reaction. But most people who aren't allergic, uh, if they encounter an insect bite or a tick bite or a mosquito bite, they're going to have just uh, some skin reactions and, and some minor problems. Then we have um, really odd things like, you know, sometimes people will go to Arizona or some other place in the Southwest and then they'll get a hitchhiker and, and the, they'll get a creature in their luggage or in their shoes that comes back with them. Uh, and so we've had several scorpion stings uh, with that same story. Someone who went to go vacation in the Grand Canyon and then they came back with a, a scorpion in their luggage and then they had a scorpion sting for, that was originally from Arizona. Uh, we've had people that uh, encounter caterpillars, and believe it or not, caterpillars, they can be very cute. Some people find them kind of cute, um, but they actually, there's some kinds of caterpillars that can uh, actually get under your skin and cause a bad dermatitis uh, or get into people's eyes with their little hairs and, and cause problems with their eyes. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of different creatures out there. Uh, I like to say Mother Nature is always kind of outsmarting us with all of the different um, chemicals as well as mechanical injuries that, that can be caused by a lot of these creatures that are out there. And that's not to mention, you know, on our coasts, we have a lot of marine creatures, uh, things like stingrays and, and sea urchins and, and corals and things like that that, that can get people, uh, which are, again, not very common. But whenever they do occur, people do call our poison control center uh, to report these injuries and to ask our advice about how best to treat them, uh, jellyfish, things like that. So we, yeah. we do have a, a, a quite a cornucopia, a menagerie of, of poisonous animals that uh, we do have to contend with here in California. Absolutely. I mean, we live in the valley and, and this is this was their home before it was ours. So That's they right. have to be able to protect it in their own way. I like to say that they're not we're not, they're not in our backyards. We're in their backyards. Absolutely. That's and very true. And that's definitely true. true for snakes and spiders. Yeah. So let's, let's start off with, with snake bites um, or snakes. Uh, you know, we're not far. I mean, we're a 20 minute drive from, from the mountains here. And I know that they're, um, they're a lot more common 
in the in the foothills and mountains than they are in Fresno. Thank yes. goodness. That's correct. I wouldn't know what to do if I ran into a snake in my home. But <laughs> but let's let's talk about the rattlesnake bite and, and let's talk about first how do you so you come you you come in contact with a rattlesnake and you 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 haven't been bitten yet, but you've discovered that you're in front of a rattlesnake. Yes. What what's the first thing you do? Well, first try not to panic. I know it's almost visceral or instinctual to go into that panic or freeze reaction. Uh, try not to do that. Just remember the odds are on your side. Uh, chances, the worst case scenario is if you get bitten by a snake, you will not die. You, you may have a bad day, you may have a bad week, but it's not going to be a fatal reaction. Uh, and the odds are on your side that you will make a full recovery. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Second of all, the snake is not out to get you. You know, you're much bigger than the snake. And uh, the snake is really just kind of minding its own business, probably trying to hide under a rock or some bushes. And if, if they do get bitten, uh, then a patient is usually startling the snake uh, or has surprised the snake somehow. So it's not out to get human beings. Uh, it's just out to get, a, a, you know, a mouse or some kind of a rodent uh, for its dinner. Uh, and unfortunately, we have these interspecies disagreements that sometimes happen. Uh, people either um, accidentally startle a snake or if they're really unwise, they'll try to pick one one up or something like that and then that's how they get bitten but just remember you know just don't panic the odds are on your side uh if you do just see a snake and it, it, there's several feet between you and the snake uh then just reverse whatever movement you're you were making to get there and just very slowly back away uh, and that is most likely going to lead to a very peaceful separation that will allow you to distance yourself from the snake uh, so that you don't get bitten. Uh, if you're if you're really close, then again, um, you know, try to shield yourself somehow, either uh, hopefully if you're wearing and this is really just a lot of preventative things that we try to tell people to do, you know, wear good boots wear good shoes, uh, long pants. If you have a stick, use a stick uh, to try to get, get it between your skin and the snake so that the snake attacks the stick. And so, you know, using gear and using the right kind of um, protective clothing can actually really be helpful when you're out um, hiking. Uh, so just think about the kinds of activities that you're going to be doing before you start your day so that you can be prepared for worst case scenarios. Um, and, you know, the, the, the stick and any first aid gear that you have is going to help um, extraordinarily whenever you do have an injury, either from a snake bite or some other insect or animal, or even if you just, you know, trip and fall and, and sprain your ankle or break something, then you can actually use your first aid gear. So always have that pre pre preventative uh, preparation mindset before you start out on any kind of outdoors adventure, because that will really pay dividends later on. Uh, and then beyond that, once you, if you do get bitten, uh, then, uh, you know, please have access to a friend or a phone or both so that you can get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, if you're, if you're isolated, uh, if you're far, far away from getting paramedic help or wilderness help, uh, and if, if you're not able to communicate with other people like your family or your friends, then that really just worsens the prognosis, uh, for, you know, recovery and for getting to a place where you can start the recovery process, which is getting to a place that is anti-venom. And so just put yourself in the best possible scenario by hiking with a friend, uh, being in communication with your loved ones, and having kind of an exit strategy at all points of your trip. So that's kind of what we try to really um, stress to people is that, you know, these little things that we think are just kind of a, a waste of time are not going to be very important. They end up being really important because we actually talk to people that have gotten bitten and the people that do well, that recover very quickly, that get to help right away are the ones that really prepared. Uh, you know, obviously some people are luckier than others, but the people that prepare really have 
have a better outcome from things like snake bites and, and other kinds of envenomations. And so just, just keep that in the back of your mind that you could really help yourself by just doing some basic common sense kind of stuff, like wear the right footwear, wear long pants, carry a stick, uh, and then have access to help whenever you need it. Okay, so no flip-flops and shorts when hiking. That's the not, first and foremost. Not, not advisable. <laughs> not advisable. So when you do get, um, you do get unfortunate and you do get bitten, you've startled a snake and you do have somebody there. Is that is that person or, or are you communicating with 911? Are you saying, hey, go get the car. We need That's to go to urgent advise, care. You know, just get to a hospital as, su- as rapidly as you can. Uh, if you can walk out, if you got it bitten on the hand, um, then that's that's actually a, a very good scenario because that means you still have your your ambulation and you can actually walk away and walk to a place where you can get into your car or walk to a place of safety where someone else can come rendezvous and pick you up. So that's the best case scenario. Even if you get bitten on the leg, um, the pain is going to start, and we'll talk about the signs and symptoms in a little bit, but basically you're going to have time, usually minutes and maybe even hours, where uh, you're going to be able to walk. Okay. And so walk as far as you can until the, the pain becomes excruciating, uh, and then you know try to get help the rest of the way. But try to just start your exit as soon as you get bitten, because you know the time to antivenom is really what we, what we think is the most important factor in getting you recovered as soon as possible. Okay, so so it's the nine one one call because at that point they're going to call whoever can get to you fastest yes. with any antivenom. That's correct. Okay, perfect. That's correct. All right, so now let's talk about about the signs and the symptoms that beside the fact that you just got okay. bit by something right. and you know you know it's a well. There's a big panic. Yeah, there, a big element of this is panic. You know, and it, that's natural. You know, people panic. Your heart rate's going to go up. You're going to start sweating. You're going to start hyperventilating. You may even start throwing up. And it's really hard for us to know as toxicologists how much of that is a snake venom versus how much of that is just your panic reaction setting in. But regardless, that's going to be an element of what you're dealing with. Beyond that, the venom itself, um, again, the snake is producing venom in order to be a digestive and defensive mixture. And it really, again, it's not out to get you. It's really out to digest its dinner. Mm -hmm. And so whenever the snake injects venom, into a mouse, we know that the mouse stops moving, uh, it gets paralyzed, and that all of its muscles and tissues start to liquefy because it's a digestive mixture. And that's kind of what happens whenever the snake venom gets under our own skin, is that we can have some muscle issues. It usually doesn't paralyze us to where we stop breathing if it's a rattlesnake. And then it actually starts to break down a lot of our, our skin, Uh, muscles, soft tissues underneath our skin. And then you get a lot of swelling. And with that comes pain. And it can look, you know, kind of, you can Google these, these pictures of snake bites, and you can sort of see that, you know, uh, it can look kind of gross. Uh, Fortunately, it's pretty superficial. And so the deep structures are usually left intact, just because snakes and the encounter being what it is, they're not able to get that deep into your your skin and soft tissues to where they're really going to affect the very deep structures of the deep muscles. And that's why I say if you can walk out, try to walk out because whatever you're seeing, whatever pain you're feeling is actually pretty superficial and your deep muscles are going to work just fine. Okay. Now, as as the time goes on, does it get more painful? It does. Yeah, it it actually progresses. Yeah. And we see that especially once people are hospitalized, then we start to really measure these things hour by hour. And we actually get out the tape measures and we, we mark up the arm. Uh, and we actually measure the arm or the leg, and we can see that it swells up. 
you know, th that's a very common reaction that occurs with snake bites is that you get swelling, uh, you get bruising, you get blister formation. Again, these are all the things that venom does whenever it gets in contact with our body tissues is that it starts to kind of liquefy and digest whatever it touches. And that's kind of what the antivenom is designed to stop. Okay. It's actually designed to neutralize the venom so that you don't get any more progression of damage. It's not going to magically heal you up. Uh, but it's going to stop that stop. that liquefactive process from going any further or deeper, and that's exactly what we want. And that's why we say trying to get to the antivenom as soon as possible is your is your number one goal after a snake bite. Is you want to arrest that process as soon as you can. Okay, so, and I'm gonna blame the movies. You see the movies all the time. There's Somebody a, gets a, snake bit. They want to put a tourniquet or something on it. God forbid anybody wants to suck the venom out. You know, these are not necessarily things. You're, like there, you said, you're not going to die from this There this is bite. so much myth and misinformation about snake bite treatment. And, you know, th these are this is an ancient sort of um, uh, uh, relationship that we've had is, you know, between humankind and snakes. Uh, and it goes back as far as both species go in terms of, you know, we've we've had to deal with snakes wherever humans went. Snakes kind of were around. Uh, and so there's been a lot of mythology and folklore and really just um, misinformation about how to deal with snake bites that we deal with even now, you know, in this very modern scientific era that we live in. And so we do see people applying tourniquets. Uh, we do see people sucking on the wound. Uh, cutting on the wound, trying to freeze it by sticking it in ice water, trying to electrocute the skin and trying to denature or inactivate the venom that way. People really just do all kinds of secondary first aid, which is just counterproductive because okay. A, it wastes time, B, it could damage your own tissues, and C, it delays the time that you actually can get to a hospital to get antivenom. So we recommend don't do any of that. Do not do any of that, not even the tourniquets or the sucking on the wound, which is you see all the time. Uh, just call 911 and get to a hospital as soon as possible so they can start an IV and start the antivenom as soon as they can. Okay. Now, what can you do out in the field if you just are just bored to death and you're waiting for the paramedics to come? Uh, or if you want to help your friend or a relative um, be more comfortable? Well, one thing that really hurts a lot is whenever you're bitten and this venom is under your skin, if you're moving and flapping that arm or leg around, that, that actually is painful because mm -hmm. that's kind of sliding the venom back and forth and your tissues are kind of inflamed. Uh, they're very um, swollen up. Uh, they're damaged. And so if you can minimize motion, um, then that's uh, that's a plus. And so how do you minimize motion but still keep the patient comfortable without creating a tourniquet? Well, that that takes a little bit of practice, but what it's what we like to teach people to do is called a splint wrap. And that's where, again, that walking stick comes in handy or any other twig that you have around. You actually just kind of uh, immobilize the joint uh, that's flopping around, uh, and then you wrap it very lightly with really any cloth that you have available, you know, okay. a, a scarf, a shirt, any other, any other kind of loose clothing that you have. If you can just immobilize the limb and I say, just treat it like a fracture, you know, just pretend it's a fracture and just immobilize it. So it doesn't move around at the joints and that will help keep the venom in place so that it doesn't go any deeper or further. And it will actually keep the patient more comfortable. So that's the one thing that you can do in the pre-hospital setting. Okay. But again, don't delay calling 911 to do that. And don't delay leaving wherever you are, the hiking trail or the park, in order to immobilize someone. Only do it if you're just waiting around and bored and you, ha you don't have anything else to do and you want to keep the patient more comfortable. 
Okay. And so that's the one thing that we recommend doing is just doing a light wrapping with a stick so that you're not cutting off circulation um, and then treating it as if it were a fracture uh, where you just immobilize the joint. And then, and then when they get to the hospital, you know, they'll undo that whole wrapping and then they'll be able to assess exactly where the damage is and they'll start the antivenom and they'll keep kind of measuring the patient to see how they're responding to the antivenom. Okay, so they, they, you're given the antivenom. It's, it's going to kind of stop the process. It's not going to mm-hmm. reverse because you're going to have to self-heal at that right. point. exactly. Now, are there other tests that you that you continue with or is that kind yeah, of just Yeah, we do. It? We actually, you know, we, we check basic chemistries. We'll check some basic, you, you know, blood cell counts. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting um, for the medical personnel out there is that your platelets drop with snake bites. And so a low platelet count is actually a very good marker for us to know that there's venom inside the patient. Even if we don't see any swelling or if the swelling is not that evident yet, if we see a low platelet count, we're going to go ahead and give antivenom because that's a good marker for us. And so that's one test that we do in the emergency department. Uh, your coagulation parameters can be off a little bit so that you're not you're not really clotting as effectively as you should. So we can kind of measure that in the emergency department as well. And then one study that we've done at the Community Regional Medical Center, which is kind of neat because it's we're the only center that does this, I think, is we actually uh, take the ultrasound machine and we actually ultrasound wherever is bitten. And that allows us to see underneath the skin. Because usually you see a lot of bruising and swelling at the level of the skin. But what patients want to know and what we want to know as physicians is what what's going on with the deeper structures underneath the skin. Because that's where the real precious real estate is. What's going on with your muscles, your compartments, your tendons. And the ultrasound allows us to see that. Uh, and it's a very painless procedure because it doesn't require us to kind of cut the patient open or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We can just use an ultrasound probe and we can look under their, underneath their swelling and we can, we can actually document exactly what's going on. And that's how we know that this is a very superficial injury because every time we've done it, we've been able to document that um, whatever swelling we're seeing, no matter how bad it looks, and these photographs that you can, you can kind of search for all over the Google, you can actually see that it looks just terrible. But then when you ultrasound these, pe- pe- these people's extremities, you see that their deeper muscles are just fine. Mm-hmm. And that's why they heal very quickly. You know, they okay. heal within two to four weeks. They're back at work. They're doing all of their activities. And so they heal very quickly because their deeper structures are intact. And, and that, that's reassuring to patients also. You can actually show them right there at the bedside that, you know, the arm that was bitten looks just like the arm that's not bitten and, and underneath the ultrasound because your deeper structures look exactly the same. They're fine. Yeah. So is there a higher risk for somebody that is younger that gets bitten, like a, a child or something? Is there anything um, different? Or certainly, just- um, we we uh, we do see children that get bitten, uh, and because they have smaller sort of extremities, they may end up having uh, more swelling, just proportionally speaking. Uh, but beyond that, we actually treat children with the same doses of antivenom that we treat adults, uh, and we really just base it on whether their their um, their their damage is being um, expanding or not. And so we actually just treat kids and adults very similarly. We we check the same labs, we check the same um, sort of parameters, we check their swelling, um, and 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 they they end up recovering uh, remarkably well. Even if you know we see we see one-year-olds and two-year-olds sometimes get bitten, which is pretty tragic, but it does happen. Right. Um, and, and they they actually make pretty good recoveries um, okay. just based on the antivenom that we're giving. Yeah. 
Okay. So, I mean, with the exception of rattlesnakes, are there other snakes out there that we should be worried about in the Central Valley? I mean, I don't really ever hear of anything more Not than Not really. Um, you know, there, within, rattle, within the term rattlesnake, there are several species and subspecies that are found all over California. So just depending on where you're out hiking or, or where you, you happen to be, you can see some of these different species. And we know that they have different clinical characteristics that they cause. Uh, but the practical implication is that we're going to be using the same antivenom same to treat them all. Okay. And so it really doesn't uh, doesn't really matter what species of rattlesnake bit you as long as your skin and your labs doc you know reflect that uh, you, have you have venom. you have some venom effect going on. We're going to treat you with the same kind of anti venom, no, and that's no, why we we tell people don't bring in the yeah, snake. We don't need no to reason see, to bring the snake in. No, right? There's no reason to revenge yourself. You know, there's usually like a cousin with a shovel that's waiting oh. to go kill the snake for you, uh, and and they usually. Um, a, end up hurting the snake, which is not that good. And B, they can actually hurt themselves if they're handling the snake improperly. They're actually a dead, decapitated snake can still cause envenomation. And so we just say, leave them alone. You know, leave the creature alone. We don't actually need to have it brought into the emergency department for us to do our job. And so we, we, we just don't, don't need to have that information. We can just treat them. We can treat patients fully without identifying the species of the snake. Has anybody ever brought one in? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> All the time. I have I have nurses that live in the in the foothills. Uh, up, up in uh, you know near Yosemite, and they see snakes on their property all the time, and so they'll they'll bring in a whole a molten snakeskin, and and they're beautiful. You know they're amazing creatures. I mean they're just really fascinating creatures, and they'll bring in molten snakeskins or sometimes just you know snake, you know snake rattles and things like that. So you know when you talk to people that live up in the foothills, they're, they're they have a very kind of intimate relationship with these creatures. I do not live in the foothills, and that is probably why. <laughs> I like I said, spiders. I can I can pretty much do live with spiders because yeah. we do in the valley. We have a lot right. of them, but snakes. Yep. That's a whole. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, yeah. That's true. I have I've never I've never encountered a snake where I've been. Oh, there's a snake. I mean, I've seen them. Yeah, you and, know, and you and, see them quite often. Yeah, and like I said, it's instinctual. Um, it doesn't matter if it's venomous or not. Some most of us can't identify a venomous versus a non-venomous snake. And that's another myth: is you know, will the snake rattle before it bites you? And that's not necessarily no, the case. I yeah. mean, sometimes it does give a warning rattle just to say, hey, stay away from me. You know, don't touch, don't come near. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it doesn't. So don't wait for that rattle and don't don't use that rattle as determining whether you should, you know, interact with this creature or not. Right. Just choose not to interact with the creature. And you could still be bitten by a rattlesnake but not get venom. They could not release that's it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And that's called a dry bite. And that okay. happens in about one-fifth of all snake bites. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it actually does happen very frequently. And that's where the labs kind of help is we'll observe the patient and we'll get labs okay and if after observing the patient and after getting a normal set of labs we determine that it was a dry bite then we don't start the antivenom we just kind of treat that as a puncture wound and, and let the person go on their way which is very fortunate okay. and that can happen yeah so again that's why i said the odds are on your side that you're going to do well because about a fifth of these snake bites can end up being a dry bite okay and um just one other question on that so depending on the on how much venom is in you is how fast it's going to react to you, I'm assuming. So if, a, you mm -hmm. know, because you hear these things, oh, it's a baby snake, they're going to release more venom because they don't know how to control I, it. I've heard thing. that as well. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Um, there's probably some truth to that, but honestly, we can't tell. Uh, you know, people often want to describe the size of the snake. And again, it doesn't clinically doesn't help us one okay. way or the other. We're just going to treat with the same dose of no matter what. Okay. based on what we see. All right. So bottom line, Get your butt to hospital That's right. if you get bit by a rattlesnake. That's right. Okay, so some of the other, you know, things that we're, we're going to talk about are spider bites. And we, mm -hmm. once again, live in a very dry climate 
almost a desert like so we have a ton of spiders here you know knowing black widows or I, I, I would everybody that lives in Fresno has seen a black widow right you know that's not anything to be um, it's not shocking to see one I guess right. so you know what happens what's the best way to diagnose or you see a black widow you don't know if you've gotten bitten you know how do you diagnose an actual true those are um, those are great questions so th- i guess the first step is identification so um if you know what one looks like that's great they're, they're not always very dark black they can be actually brown and sometimes they can even be light brown but they're usually very shiny and they all have about the same size which is about the size of your thumbnail and um they the other uh, very telling marking is that they usually have an orange marking mm-hmm. uh which looks like an hourglass or some other kind of orange marking and that's what kind of um uh, separates them and distinguishes them as a as a a dangerous spider so if you see a dark spider with orange markings then you know that you're dealing with one of the widow spiders whether it's a black widow or a brown widow Um, they're basically going to cause the same kind of envenomation Um, beyond that whenever you get bitten by one you're going to know because it's it's usually pretty painful uh, and it's usually going to be painful pretty immediately uh, maybe not right that second, but usually within about 15 or 20 minutes, you're going to feel some kind of a throbbing, dull ache. And that is going to be uh, something that doesn't just go away. You know, whenever most insects bite us, they can usually leave a mark. Uh, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's itchy. But usually your body just reacts to that by by just letting it kind of, uh, you know, dissipate. Mm-hmm. And your nerves kind of get used to that signal. And then you can kind of ignore it for the rest of the day, even though you have, say, a mosquito bite or an ant bite. Now, what happens with these black widow spider bites is that they actually have a very special kind of venom that, again, gets under your skin. And instead of actually destroying and liquefying your skin like we see with snake bites, this is actually a venom that affects your nerves. And it actually makes your nerves just throb and ache. And it actually affects the nerves that control our muscles as well. And it makes your muscles really contract. And that's what people describe is that they just feel a very deep kind of a a knot of muscle that's just contracting wherever they got bitten. Whenever we look at these patients on their skin, they may not have any bruising or blisters, but they have a ring. Usually it's the size of a coin of sweat. Just a very localized coin-shaped lesion, which is very wet on their skin. And that's just because all those nerves that are that are responsible for our sweating are, are going off in that one particular region. And actually, that's that's how we make the diagnosis of the black widow um, of the black widow um, spider bite. Is if we see if we if the patient tells us, I thought it was a spider, I'm feeling a dull, throbbing ache, and then we look at the area of the skin, we might see puncture marks, we might not see puncture marks. I usually just put a little tissue right on the area of the skin, and then I I push the tissue box, I press a tissue box right on it. And I wait about 90 seconds, and then I lift the box up, and I usually see a ring of sweat that's collected on the tissue paper. And that's a very diagnostic test for black widows. So there's really no blood test that helps us with black mm-hmm. widow spider bites. It's usually just the clinical syndrome. Uh, if you see that ring-shaped, um, coin-shaped um, ring of sweat, and then if the patient just tells a story that I just can't get comfortable, it just feels like a dull, dull excuse me, it just feels like a dull, throbbing, aching um, pain, um, then that's very, very suggestive of a black widow spider bite. Okay. Then their vital signs may have some abnormalities. They're usually, you know, reflective of the fact that the patient's having some pain. So they can have a high blood pressure or a high heart rate. Um, uh, usually they're breathing pretty fast. If the black widow got them on an area of the body that affects their muscles of respiration or their torso, then they can actually have some very serious symptoms like 
chest pain or you know severe back pain or abdominal pain and they if they don't recognize that it's a spider bite then they get a big workup you know you get a you get ruled out for a heart attack right. you get a cat scan of your belly you know you can get a big workup and it's all due to the fact that this spider bite is just creating these muscle spasms that no one can really figure out and it feels like you're having a heart attack or it feels like you're having an abdominal emergency and so there's a lot of case reports in the literature of spider bites that are causing all of these kind of false tests or false workups to get done just because they mimic all these other um, syndromes that uh, that we really get worried about much more like heart attacks and abdominal catastrophes and things like that okay. so that does happen as well and that's why it's really good just as a reminder to do a good a good physical exam and just check the skin very carefully whenever someone comes in with a story like this you know oh I was outdoors I was cleaning my garage or I was you know reaching in somewhere an old dusty place right. uh, and then that's when this pain began you know, that's that's a typical story for a spider bite because you know that you encountered a spider that was kind of hiding out there. You surprised the spider and then it bit back. And then that's when the pain began. So the history is very suggestive. And then some of the physical exam findings are very suggestive. But black widows are challenging because they can really mimic a lot of different disease processes. And it can, it can be a, a real challenge to work through in the emergency department. So if you kn know you got bit by a black widow, like you've seen it and, mm -hmm. it, you know, you pull yep. out and it's on the ground after you get right. bit, do you, you, do you have to go to the emergency room? Not necessarily. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you can just take some Motrin or Tylenol and just handle the pain, mm -hmm. uh, there's really not much more that we're going to offer in the emergency department if your pain is under control. Okay. Because unlike the rattlesnakes where we're going to need to give antivenom, with black widow spider bites, we actually are going to just treat pain. Okay. And treat muscle spasms with, uh, you know, we'll start with some Tylenol or Motrin, but we'll rapidly escalate into more potent medications just to kind of arrest that cycle of pain and spasm. Okay. So it just depends. You know, you don't necessarily have to go in after every spider bite, but the people that come in really did need to come in because they're having just that dull unrelenting pain it can last days oh wow and so they tell us that their their pain is a 10 out of 10 they just can't get comfortable they're really worried because they've never felt pain like this before mm -hmm. and they can't believe that a spider did this and in fact a spider can do it okay and the same thing with with children like i um i have a five-year-old and she was bit by something we mm -hmm. don't know what it was on yeah. the back and and we tr and it, it actually she was little so it, it actually started getting fairly large yeah. like the size of probably um I don't know, the top of, you know, like a, a half dollar to right. a, a, about that size. And so I marked it to see if it was getting any bigger, but mm -hmm. she wasn't, you know, she's fine. She's right. running around. I was yeah. just like, so is when you see something like that and there's no, there's no signs, is that you just assume that's not a black widow? Well, there, there's a lot of insects. Um, so it kind of, you know, one, one thing that I um, have, I've seen a bunch of spider bites as well as other insect bites and stings. And, and typically if it's itchy, it's probably not a black widow. Okay. You know, oh, black good. widows, okay. you know, if it causes an itch, a big welt, because mm -hmm. what you're describing sounds like a big welt. Right. And otherwise, the patient's very comfortable. The child's very comfortable. Uh, and if it's really itchy, you know, the fancy name for that is urticaria. And there's a lot of insects that just trigger histamine in our bodies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the histamine just causes hives. And sometimes you get a giant hive. Uh, and so that may be what, what happened is that some insect probably triggered just a big hive reaction uh, in your child. And, and otherwise, the child is very comfortable. And so we do see that. Uh, and it looks very worrisome, obviously, whenever it's very large like that. Mm -hmm. But as, as long as the patient's comfortable, they don't necessarily need any specific treatment. And it's probably not the black widow spider bites yeah. that we worry about. 
the con the contrast to that is when a child comes in and they're just fussy and irritable and the parents are pulling their hair out because they're like, I don't know what got into my child, but this is not this is not their normal state. Mm -hmm. And unless you see a spider, it can be, again, a very challenging workup. You have yeah. to rule out things like meningitis and infections or, you know, you have to look all over just to see what's going on. Did something scratch their eye? You know, there's there's a big workup that happens with the irritable child. And one of the things in the differential diagnosis for the irritable child is a black widow spider bite. Mm -hmm. And so that can actually trigger, you know, this irritability that can last hours and hours and they're just crying at the top of their voice. And you really just have to calm them down by giving them medications. Um, and, and that's how that's treated. Yeah, so there's no, there's no, like the snake bite, you could do blood tests. There's no blood tests necessarily for not, it. Not that's that, not up. that, not that, yeah, you okay. can do blood tests to exclude other things. Right. But there's really no blood test that lets you know that this is a black widow that, that got your child. Okay. So, you know, we do have the, the brown recluse here as well, which, you know, and it's been years, but you hear people getting bit by well, brown recluses Well, actually, that's here. one. That's another common misconception is that we have brown recluses. We actually don't have any brown recluses that cause uh, medically important bites in California. So people out in the California desert have described brown recluses. There is a, you know, a species of brown recluse type spider that lives out in the deserts, you know, between California and Nevada. Um, however, that doesn't really cause the epidemic numbers of, you know, brown recluse bites that we see in places like the Deep South, like okay. Tennessee, you know, Texas. East of the Mississippi is really where the brown recluse bites are an epidemic, and they cause very serious illnesses. They cause really deep, nasty, necrotic wounds. They can cause super infections and bacterial infections. They can require surgery after surgery after surgery to try to kind of clean up those wounds and things like that. We just don't see any of that in California, and that's fortunate. Unfortunately, people think that they've been bitten by a spider that does all this mm -hmm. and they come in and they want you to just kind of operate on them and cut on them and do surgery on them because they're convinced they have a brown recluse bite that caused all this. When in fact the explanation is much more common and kind of more boring, which is that it's probably MRSA. And so that's kind of the alternative to the brown recluse story is that people are convinced that a spider caused this huge boil on them. And, you know, they're, they're they just can't believe that they that they got a spider that, you know, they didn't see any spider, et cetera. When it's actually just probably the methicillin resistant staph aureus, which is a, a very bad bacteria mm -hmm. that's everywhere. And they can cause wounds that look just like the brown recluse spider bites that we see. Um, but we don't see any actual brown recluse spider bites in California, which I think is fortunate. Yeah. Yes, it is. So it's not, it's usually, you know, if you're seeing some kind of a wound that looks like an ulcerating wound or, mm -hmm. you know, if it, if it has a lot of pus and it's very painful, uh, A, it's not a brown, it's not a, um, a black widow mm -hmm. and B, it's not a brown recluse. It's most likely some, something else. Something else. That you so okay. it's, it's most likely a bacterial infection. <clears throat> um, it could occasionally be some other bite that then became an infection. So that we call that a super infection. And that's very common. Uh, or it could be something much more serious, you know, and, and there's a huge differential for that is a, a non-healing wound could be something like a malignancy or a fungal infection or something else that really needs a biopsy to get checked out. So I, I'm not trying to minimize, you know, the seriousness of it. I just I just want to let people know that it's it's not a, a brown recluse. We just don't see recluse spider bites in California. Okay. So definite take home. Um, when you get bit, if you do get bit by a black widow, they don't itch. That's right? right. Okay. So that's good information because I always just assume whenever you get bit by something, it's going to itch. And then the brown recluse, we don't have an issue with that here in the Valley. That's right. All right. Or in California, per that, se. Those are, those are both great takeaways. Okay. So 
let's talk about other things that bite you. We okay. have the mosquito. Everybody talking about mosquitoes, yes. mosquito bites. They seem worse this year than they ever have been in the past. At least I've noticed them being a lot worse. Is there, you know, are there other things that are biting and stinging that we should be more aware of in the Central Valley that require treatment or require a call to a doctor or emergency room? That's a great question. I would say just play it by ear. Um, if your symptoms seem really severe, more severe than you can handle after a brief period of observation, then you can certainly contact your physician. And this is actually a great, you know, a nice way to plug the poison control hotline because we get called all, all the time by either patients or nursing hotlines or even physicians who just have questions about different bites and stings. And so our, our, our pharmacy experts are, are really good at managing these sorts of issues. Uh, and I would say, you know, after a brief period of observation uh, or just some very, very um, over-the-counter topical medications like Benadryl cream or antihistamine lotion, uh, if you're not getting better uh, and you're, and, or if you have anaphylaxis, then th those are all very serious signs to go see your physician or to go to an emergency department to okay. get treatment for your anaphylaxis. Okay. Uh, so those, those are the kind of very blanket statements that I can make. Beyond that, um, you know, there's certainly bees and wasps and hornets. So the we call them the hymenoptera. So these are all the different kind of flying insects that can cause problems, sometimes anaphylaxis, sometimes just really bad, painful reactions. Uh, we don't have a huge problem with the killer bees, uh, but the killer bees are found in Southern California, and there's always a threat that they're going to be creeping their way up north. And the killer bees actually will swarm, and instead of just one insect affecting the patient, you can have dozens, if not hundreds, of insects affecting the patient. And that's called a massive bee envenomation. And so whenever you have a massive bee envenomation, then the patient can actually get into big trouble with their organs failing, their organs shutting down, they have to go to a hospital. Sometimes they actually have to get admitted to an ICU, uh, believe it or not, just from so many bee stings and all of the cumulative damage of all of that venom getting into their body and shutting down their organs. So that can occur, um, and that has been described, like I said, more in Southern California, although mm -hmm. you know it's entirely possible that um, if, you're, if you're down in the Southern parts of the Central Valley that um, that, that could occur. Uh, we do have ants as well, and I think I mentioned caterpillars. So there's actually some types of caterpillars that, um, you know, caterpillars all have, uh, they're very fuzzy, and so they all have very small microscopic hairs. And some of those hairs can actually get under our skin, and they have little, just, just little bitty tiny amounts of venom in some of those species, and that can actually cause a lot of irritation, uh, typically just itching and, and mild pain, mm -hmm. although some people can have more worse reactions that would necessitate going to an emergency department. The first aid for caterpillars is kind of interesting. You really just want to get the hairs off the skin as soon as possible. And the way that you can do that is with some tape. You actually just put tape on the area that was affected by the caterpillar and then peel it off and all the hairs will come with it. And the patient will have instant relief is what, what's been reported. And so that's just a nice trick that you can just try at home. If you have, you know, a, a caterpillar um, or if you saw a caterpillar, uh, you can just try to peel off all those little hairs with the tape. And hopefully that will get the patient to a, a level of more comfort and that would prevent going to the emergency department. Who would have ever thought that caterpillars could be so vicious? Right. They, they really are. In other countries, they can cause all kinds of other, you know, weird syndromes that we like to study in the toxicology realm. But thankfully, in the U.S., they're, they're more of a nuisance than a, a threat to life. Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm assuming 
that you're working in an ER and being the medical director of the Poison Control Center, you, you hear a lot of unusual cases and stories. What are some of the, the stranger things that have happened here in the Valley? We do. Um, so we certainly, um, you know, every snake bite is its own unusual and strange encounter. And so they, they all kind of have interesting aspects to them. Um, beyond that, um, we've had people that um, have gotten affected by caterpillars. Uh, we've gotten some people that have been affected by, uh, you, you know, they were at the beach and they just were just walking in very shallow water. Uh, and then something kind of bit them and pierced their ankle. And it ends up being it was the tail of a stingray. So we've actually gotten stingray calls uh, and, you know, what to do with the first aid for stingrays uh, because they have these hard, uh, th- these tails have hard kind of, you know, calcified uh, ends that can actually just pierce your skin and puncture and they cause a lot of pain. And so um, we, we typically offer first aid advice uh, as well as, um, you know, getting them to an emergency department and, and guiding the doctors about how to treat with the stingrays. Uh, then there's other, you know, jellyfish as well as uh, coral and different sea urchins, different sharp things that you find at the bottom of the sea that people can encounter either in very shallow water or if they're out snorkeling or scuba diving off the coast they can encounter those um, then there's plants that people get into as well. I know this is not a, really a podcast about plants necessarily, but when you're out in the wild, you know, sometimes something stings you and you don't know whether it was a bug or a snake or a plant and people come in, you know, hours to days later and they have this thing on their skin and they're not sure exactly what it is. So there's different cacti as well as other kinds of plants that can cause some dermatitis and irritation as well. So we hear about that too. Once again, we're living in their world and it's we true. just got to work around it. No, I, I remember I had um, was in Hawaii one time and we were snorkeling and I hit the top of my thigh mm-hmm. on coral. I kid you not, it took it, months. It's excruciating. Months for it to heal. Yeah. It was it was the strangest thing ever. I mean, yep. it, I mean, it drew a little bit of blood, but I yep. kid you not, it took solid probably two months for it yeah. to heal. Yeah, it gives you new respect for uh, yeah. for nature's creativity. Yes, and in, in terms touch, of its defensive touch. mechanisms. So, so you mentioned earlier before we started the podcast that you work with the Fresno Chaffee Zoo. Mm-hmm. What exactly do you do with them? Well, you know, if you've ever been to the zoo, you know that it's a great resource here locally. They have experts from uh, really all the different uh, departments that, that know all about the animal kingdom. And um, we work closely with their, with their herpetology department. Uh, and those are the folks that uh, take care of the snakes and reptiles. Uh, and as you know, the Fresno Chaffee Zoo has uh, snake species from all over the world, uh, including rattlesnakes, but also snake species from Asia, from Africa. Um, they, they have a lot of different, they're called exotic varieties. Uh, and, and a lot of them are actually venomous and they're not going to respond. It, you know, the worst case scenario is if, if one of the zookeepers gets bitten, uh, then we can't necessarily use the American antivenom if it's a snake from a different region of the world. And so they actually have antivenoms from all over the world uh, on site at the Fresno Zoo. And as physicians, we actually work with them to collaborate on their first aid protocols and we actually just you know think ahead to the worst case scenarios uh, and, and just think about what if you know someone was accidentally bitten or what if they were you know accidentally um, 
encountered a, a venomous snake, what would what would we have to do? How would we use the antivenoms that they have on site? And so we're helping them develop all of their first aid guidelines and protocols. Um, and, and that's been a really fun project. It's taught us a lot about the snake biology as well as how to procure and take care of these snake bites from all over the world. And beyond the zoo, I, I mean, you know, the Poison Control Center here in Fresno, Madera, we actually cover Los Angeles because Los Angeles doesn't have a poison control center. And so as the medical director of the Poison Control Center, I don't want to say I stay up nights thinking about this, but it's always in the back of my mind that, you know, somebody in L.A. probably has a pet gaboon viper. And if they're not careful, they're going to get bitten. And if they get bitten, then the poison control is going to get called. And we're going to have to secure the gaboon viper antivenom. And so that's it's going to be up to us to kind of figure out how to treat that patient. And, you know, a city the size of Los Angeles, you know that this is statistically probable. You know, it's not impossible to think about. And so it's always nice for us to be able to work with different area zoos to try to figure out these first aid protocols beforehand. Because we're always trying to, like I said at the very beginning of the podcast, we're always trying to think ahead and just, you know, do the preventative steps so that we can help ourselves later in, in, in case of a, of a bite from either a rattlesnake or a, a snake from some other part of the world. That's fascinating. I, we'll go into it this later, but I would love to know why we're covering LA's uh, poison control. I mean, you would have thought that big of a city would have their own. Yeah, they, we actually, um, the, 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 the poison control center um, here in Fresno, it's actually based at the, at the Valley Children's Hospital up in Madera. And we cover not only the Central Valley, but we also cover the northern part of LA all the way up to uh, almost Sacramento. Oh, and wow. that's, there's four poison control centers all over the state. And those four kind of have divided up the whole state. And, I see. and back, you know, almost two decades ago, whenever the poison control system was formulated, uh, they just decided that, you know, this was going to be the center that, that covered Los Angeles. And that's kind of how it's been since then. But which makes it fun for us because yeah. we get calls from, you know, all over uh, really the whole state. Um, and we get all the agricultural calls regarding pesticides as well as, you know, the different um, snakes and spiders here in the Central Valley. But then we also get all of the very urban calls about the new new drugs of abuse and all the overdoses and things like that. So it kind of makes for a very exciting job for me. I guess. How many calls a day does, on average, does Poison Control get? We get uh, – our annual call volume is just around – 300,000. And so the daily call census for the whole state is just less than a thousand calls a day, which means that our center gets about 200 calls a day. So, and is that a majority of the population or is that a medical provider? People from the public or um, the healthcare fields can call. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a free confidential hotline that anyone can call. Uh, half of our calls are from parents at home whose kids got into something. Uh, and the children are under age six. So statistically, you know, we look at all of our statistics very closely. And this is a this is a nationwide number, but it also applies to California. Is you you know about fifty percent of all calls to the poison control center are uh, affecting children under age six. Okay. And so that's why it makes sense for us to be at the Valley Children's Hospitals because we do so much pediatric poisoning as well as prevention yeah. and education and outreach. Uh, and then the rest of our calls are in are in fr from the emergency department or from the paramedics all the way into the ICU okay. and we kind of follow patients and help take care of and, and help make recommendations to help take care of them throughout their stay. Fascinating job. I would just want to sit back and listen to all the calls. It's pretty fun. In. So <laughs> going back to some of the cooler cases there, you know, we had an outbreak of, of salmonella mm -hmm. and the grandmother called grandmother says, I have two grandkids that have salmonella poisoning. This is down in the inland empire somewhere like San Bernardino, Riverside County. 
And he said, well, what's the common thing? You know, did you guys eat something? No, but both my grandkids just got pet turtles. Where do they get the pet turtles? Well, they were selling baby turtles at the 99 cent store. And <laughs> so this is an outbreak of salmonella from baby turtles that are being sold, I'm sure not legally, from at a, out of a 99 cent store somewhere in the Inland Empire. And so, you know, we that's kind of the value of poison control is we're able to kind of then alert the public health agencies that, you know, you've got uh, this pet baby turtle operation going on and it's causing a, an outbreak of salmonella. Uh, please go look into it. And so we, we're always collaborating with public health agencies and vice versa. You know, they're always educating us as well about different epidemics that they're seeing. So it's kind of fun. It's, it's a great intersection of individual patient care uh, with public health. Yeah. So that's kind of what makes it a, a really um, fulfilling position for me. Very unique, unique. Well, thank you, doctor. I appreciate your time. And this is fascinating. I, I'm glad I live in the Central Valley where all I have to worry about is a, a couple of um, black widows every now and then and not go. have to worry about these venomous cobra snakes that I can't imagine someone keeping as a pet. But That's right. Well, I appreciate it. And um, hopefully we can come back soon and talk to us about a different topic. Thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you.